The Tablet Show, episode 110, with guest Jen Myers. Recorded live Wednesday, November 6th, 2013. From thetabletshow.com, it's The Tablet Show. Conversations about developing software for tablets and other mobile devices with your hosts, Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. In this episode, Carl and Richard talk to Jen Myers about developers being able to design. This episode of The Tablet Show is sponsored by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. Online at telerik.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Well, hey, Mr. Campbell. Howdy, sir. How are you? I'm well. We're at Ordev. In Malmo, Sweden. Mm-hmm. How many How many years have we done this? Nine? There, Ten? There, there have been nine or devs. I think we missed the first one, and we missed one last year. So I think it's seven. Good Lord. It's a lot. We've been to Sweden a lot. Yeah, and it's in the wintertime, too, or near wintertime. It's pretty chilly. You know what's wonderful, though, about Sweden in the wintertime? Mm. Everybody hangs out in the pubs. Yes, the pubs night. are very busy. The pubs are great. And the Green Line is our favorite. Bishop's Arms is good, Bishop's too. Bishop's Arms is nice. They yeah. have a wall of scotch. Yes. Makes me happy. A wall. I get a warm and fuzzy. All right. Let's get started with Better Know Framework. Awesome. All right, buddy, what do you got? Well, I can thank my brother, Jay Franklin, who also edits this silly show. We love you, Jay. For sending us this great one. Go to tinyurl.com slash projectara. A-R-A. Yeah. Have you heard of Project Ara? Jen? I don't know if I have. No. All right. Well, this is Motorola's new modular smartphone platform. Yes. Modular smartphone platform. What they want to do is, for smartphones, what Android is for Sort of a software. Swiss Army knife. Yeah. They want you to be able to take all these modules, like you'll have a base case, like a motherboard, and be able to snap in a high-def camera if you want a high-def camera, okay. extra battery if you want extra battery. And so there'll be a, a modular developer kit basically out this winter huh. if they're going to stay on target. That's cool. But, um, yeah, they, they, they want an, an ecosystem for end users to be able to build their own smartphone. Yeah, so if you don't need a camera, like every phone comes with a camera right now. Right. If you just don't take pictures, why waste the space? Give me more battery. Yeah, give me more battery. Exactly. Yeah, I always want more battery. Right. If Great you want idea. a radio or if you don't want a radio, whatever, yeah. you know, it's uh, it's pretty neat. And, you know, we talked about uh, phone blocks yep. on the show before, and it's similar to that, but it's Motorola. Come this, on. This is Google. They're up to something. Something could happen. Well, anyway. That's cool. Tinyurl.com slash project R. You can read all about it there. It's kind of cool. Awesome. Who's talking to us, Richard? I grabbed a comment off of another live show we did, number 108. the one we did with Mr. Miller when we were in Dublin, uh, when he was comparing iOS 7 and talking about how much... Uh, he was iOS. comparing it to trash, wasn't yes, he? Yes, uh, he was not a big fan. No, he was he frustrated wasn't. in certain spots. He, he also talked about the Windows 8 UI, the whole Metro UI in its context as well. Right. But this particular comment comes from John Watt, who says, I wonder what Mark thinks about what I think as the shiny problem. Basically, it's this. New good things are shiny. We wax our cars to make them shiny. Advertisers spritz food with moisture so that it's shiny and mouth-watering. Beautiful models have skin that, quote, shines. 
Flat monocolor, on the other hand, means dull and old. To use a PowerPoint metaphor, shiny is professional stock photography, where flat is the clip art that we know, and we know which one is more expensive. I remember when Visual Studio jumped onto the anti-skeuomorphic bandwagon, and upon seeing it, I said to myself, the company makes millions off this product, and they can't make it less ugly? The difficult problem that developers have is how to make something that follows the modern best practices, which means not shiny, since that would be skeuomorphic, but doesn't come across as cheap and clip artish. Is there a secret? Good color combinations? Bad ones? Good fonts? Bad fonts? How do you pick good icons, and how many should you display? Boy, man, it all seems so subjective sometimes. Yeah, it's not easy. And, it, and we are in an interesting phase because, you know, as much as, as Metro is not skeuomorphic, it is shiny. You know, it is it's a little shiny. Bright primary colors. Like there are things they've done to sort of make it pop. I, I know Jen wants to chime in on this. So let me just say to John, yeah. John, thank you so much for your question. I, I read it for a reason because we had a real designer sitting with us today who, who I think can give some insight on this. So, But I am going to get a tablet show mug out to you. And if you'd like a tablet show mug, just write a comment on the website at thetabletshow.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And those apps were built by Diatom Enterprises. We'd love to build you an app. So just go to diatomenterprises.com. It's our great pleasure to introduce uh, to you Jen Myers. She is a web designer, developer, and teacher, part of the team at Dev Bootcamp in Chicago also. In 2011, she founded the Columbus, Ohio chapter of Girl Develop It, an organization that provides introductory coding classes aimed at women and currently co-leads the Girl Develop It Chicago chapter. She speaks regularly about design, development, and diversity, and focuses on finding new ways to make both technology and technology education accessible to everyone. Welcome, Jen. Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's a loaded question. Now, you know, <laughs> where are we, how do you make something look nice and not cheesy? Because it seems to me it, there is sort of a subjective aspect to all of these things, but there are certain principles, as we learned from Mark Miller, that... Uh, that if you violate them, confuse people. Definitely. And you were kind of uh, giving a preview of what I'm going to be talking about here at Erdiv. Um But yeah, we don't really talk or educate very well about design principles mm -hmm. and the guidelines that we use. We tend to think of it as just magic. And, and I think that creatives, in a way kind of perpetuate that myth yeah because yeah. Um, it makes it yeah and it makes it sound more important right like you know <laughs> we're designers and we don't you know talk about the process and then right. the end result is when we're working with uh, developers and I'm one of these people who kind of I've always been in the middle ground I'm not really a designer not really a d developer I kind of do a little bit of both yeah. sure um, and so I kind of have a better perspective on um, what each side thinks of the other and the communication between the two about what goes on in the design world and how it relates to development usually gets just shrouded in mystery and we don't really like talk about it very well. Um, but there are certain principles and sometimes some subjectivity gets in there, but um, mostly I don't think there has to be. A lot of this is founded and there are reasons why we make certain decisions mm -hmm. and it comes out of either design theory. Or, and I think that the problem is that... Um, Traditional design theory never really took applications in, in software into account. And so right. we're kind of learning how to create a new design language for this new dynamic medium. And the medium is so new that we're still figuring out the best ways to create rules and express those rules. So what about the skeuomorphic angle on this? I mean, I, I buy into why you do that because it seems familiar. But right. I also buy into this idea that we've all been using smartphones for a while now. Mm -hmm. 
isn't it reasonable that we would simplify and, and, and actually, you know, count on the fact that, yeah, it doesn't need to look like a bookcase right. for me to be able to find my books. Right. I actually really disagree with the notion that let's design something to look like something people are familiar with right. in the real world, because that means that you're not paying attention to the medium you're working in. And sure. if you're not understanding or paying attention to the meeting you're designing, the medium you're designing for, mm -hmm. then how do you know you're designing most effectively for it? It's the same reason that I really advocate for people who work as designers to really understand code and understand what's going on in it. Right. Um, because if you don't, then how can you effectively design a user interface or know how the application sure. is working? And I think skeuomorphism, this whole debate that's gotten blown out of proportion, but I think that's essentially what the key is with it, is that you really need to understand the medium you're designing for if you're just saying that like oh I like the way stitch leather looks so I'm just going to you know shove that into this application you know maybe there are some things when that decision would or the end result of that decision would be perfectly appropriate and you can totally do that but if you're not going through that process of thinking specifically about what is best for this medium and this application that I'm doing right now then I don't think that the decision you end up at the end is going to be a valid one because you haven't gone through that process sure. so I'm much more of an advocate of like let's look at the medium we're working in and what is appropriate for what we're doing right now. And maybe sometimes that's going to be a skeuomorphic type decision. I think more often, and this is something else when we talk about the alternative to skeuomorphism, flat design. Right. Um, that's another thing where people, I think, kind of misinterpret it. It's just this trend or, you know, it's it's shiny versus, you know, uninteresting. Dull. Yeah, dull, yeah. something like that. Um, for me, I tend to gravitate, I've always gravitated more towards a flat design because... That's flat. Yeah, Look at your devices. This you is know, what this I, is, I brought this, this up, my Windows phone, and I just wanted to get your initial reaction to my start screen here. Yeah. And what do you think of this? Is this what does this say to you? In general, I like it. Um, that's the thing. It's not good because it's flat necessarily. Yeah. But I do think that it is taking into account the medium that's working with a lot more, and say like we have this flat surface, and people you know, touch it. It's not like something else that we've done before. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it may not be perfect, but I think it's starting from the right place. It's mm -hmm. starting from thinking about the medium and the device and then going on from there. And I think there's still many places that we can go from there and there's still a lot of work to go from there. But I like the trend of starting to think kind of what you were saying that this is becoming more normalized. We sure. don't have to just make it look like something else we know. We're starting to build a new visual language. And if we want our interfaces to keep up with the software we're creating, we, we need to learn this language and we need to learn how to teach other people how to speak it. Yeah, I find it fascinating. I, re I remember when GUIs first came along because I'm that old. And this idea of having a beveled button on the screen mm. to create the cue for the human that when I click on this button, it's a button, it moves, right. quote yeah. unquote. Although we were clicking on it with a mouse. Right. I find it right. funny now that when we're finally using our fingers to click on buttons, they don't look like buttons anymore. It's funny, isn't it? They're just boxes. Right. And it's a funny thing you say that because I've heard some people have criticisms of flat design and like, well, how do I know that's a button? How do I know to click it? It's like, well, how did you know it before? Right. You know, uh, you know, we, that wasn't an actual physical button before we had just, you know, made it look a certain way and yeah. that you understood that to mean this is clickable, but that was teaching you a language and we, that was taking a little bit more from uh, physical uh, objects. Yeah. But it's just something you learn and eventually, you know, you learn that there are certain, uh, you know, shapes and uh, spacing, things like that, that indicates this is a clickable button. This is a new, it's an evolution of the But if you think language. about it, on a PC screen, some things are clickable and some things aren't. 
on a touch screen, everything is touch. Mm-hmm. So true. Yeah. So the, the yeah different. So for there's different no mediums. need to differentiate yeah. a button mm-hmm. from anything else because yeah. everything's a button. That's very true. Mm-hmm. I also realized we taught ourselves that blue underlined text right. meant a link, mm-hmm. right. which is weird. Right. Why blue underlined text? Because that's what Tim Berners-Lee picked right, right. all those years ago. And now it's in our psyche mm-hmm. that if I see blue underlined text, I can click on that. Right. Exactly. I remember doing a DNR TV with Adam Kogan and it wasn't too long ago. It might have been, been when we were in Australia. Or that's a few years now. Yeah, 2009? Yep. I can't remember when, but uh, we, we sat down and he had these sort of best practices for web design. And one of his best practices was, you know, using blue underline for, mm-hmm. you know, for hyperlinks. Blue underline text, like, because that makes it clear to everybody that this is a, a hyperlink. Right. When you, you know, just subtly shade your hyperlinks, that mm-hmm. doesn't give enough of a visual cue to people. Right. I try to make very, even when I'm just doing web design stuff now, I, I, all regular links, I try to make sure I have some sort of line under them, whether mm-hmm. I, sometimes I don't like the text underline, so I'll yeah. use a border, but that indicates that this is a link. And also for people who, there's accessibility issues. If people right. um, don't see certain colors, then they don't know it's a link. Um, and if it's not that, then it's something that's totally different, like it's in a navigation, or so by its location, or right. maybe um, what I surround it with, or the font that I choose for it, or the maybe it's all capital letters, use something to indicate that this is different than other text. Right. And that's what you can use. It, it, you, sometimes you build up your own visual language within particular applications or sites, too. But you have to kind of work with your medium that you're doing and understand how people are coming into that. One of the things I think we've lost along the way, going away from the mouse to the touch, is the hover. Yes, There's just no true. way to hover anyways. It used to be if I wasn't sure about a button or, right. or some text or anything, if I just put my mouse pointer there, after a little while, a little tip would pop up mm-hmm. and go, ah, you can click on this. Like they, It would give me a hint. And right. we don't have that with touch. No. Once the leap is embedded in all of our devices, however, that would, no, I'm just kidding. Nice. <laughs> I, think I don't know the, if I'm kidding, actually. Yeah. I think the plus side to that for me is that that forces people to think more carefully about how they're designing and what information they're getting across. Mm -hmm. If you need a tool tip, then my first inclination is to say, well, that could be designed better in the first place. So now that we, maybe it's taking away certain, um, you know, exactly. Crutches is what I'm going for. So it's kind of saying, Oh, you know, we don't have that anymore. So now we need to make sure we're designing this better. So people, it's more intuitive. No, I like that. I I like that thinking. Mm -hmm. I also think that, you know, part of this is you should be always able to go back if you're not sure. Right. But, uh, yeah. And you know what Mark was really complaining about in that show uh, on the tablet show was the inconsistencies in the iOS seven UI design that mm-hmm. here was text that when read was one you shouldn't click on That's and right. this other one read it you should click on it. Yeah. Yeah. And That's that, very yeah. I guess that, is that the biggest sin of design is just not being consistent? I I think it could be. I never really thought about what is for sure. Everybody's got their own little thing that they hate. Mm-hmm. But I think that's a great one if you had to pick one, picking yeah. um inconsistency because there's nothing more confusing than not establishing rules and then not following them. Right. I mean if I'd like to think that any kind of designer designing an application or anything like that should be thinking about how the user is going through it. And if it's confusing the user, like if you're telling, it's the same thing if you pulled somebody in and told them one thing and then you turn around and tell them, oh, except I want you to do this now. And if you're doing that in an application, then your users aren't going to have a very good time and you should be thinking about that sort mm-hmm. of thing. Let's talk about contrast. Okay. When I say contrast, contrast what, do you, good. what do you think of? 
and just when it as pertains to design? I definitely think that um, I'm, I'm very much into readability and accessibility. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to do very minimalist um, designs that gets information across. I'm kind of what you talked about in my bio. I'm very much about like this is a tool for information and getting people to do things that they wouldn't be able to do. Information, functionality, all that stuff. So as simple and straightforward as possible is my general rule. And then when that comes to contrast, is uh, definitely make sure that those are, you know, those rules are followed visually as well um, and not uh, decreasing it so it looks cooler. <laughs> sure. And one of the things that uh, Mark complains about a lot is, uh, you know, a, a higher contrast or a bolder, let's just say a bolder uh font or, mm-hmm. a, you know, something that has a darker color implies more importance. Mm-hmm. And so um, things that are darker, if they're not important, are noise. Right. So if you have, you know, a screen where the things that are important have more contrast, the things that are less important can actually be mm-hmm. dimmed down a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but you don't see that usually, you know, usually we're barraged with a you know, a slew of options that are all just as important and equally important. And it just causes us to sort of freeze a little bit. There's definitely overload and a lot of things like that. I think pretty much everything that we're dealing with could use some simplification. And and that's another area where you can use, if you understand that rule, it makes it a lot easier to figure out, do I really need this uh, this menu right here, or mm-hmm. do I can that be on another page, or you know things like right. that. So if you have those principles in mind, then you can make more informed decisions about those yeah. sort of things. It still feels to me like we don't have as clear a set of rules in this modern UI world. Like back in the good old Battleship Gray days of mm-hmm. Windows three one and Visual Basic, even up to fairly recently, you know, mm-hmm. two thousand four, two thousand five. You know, we had very strict guidelines coming out of Microsoft, at least, right. that said, you know, thou shalt build a multi-document interface, and there will be a file menu in the top left-hand right. corner and a help menu over mm-hmm. on the right, and there'll be these things in it. And you, you knew what to do. Well, right. it's because it was one company and one product and, yeah, building it, a one I, style of app. I think we're also in a time when Microsoft was pushing hard on this. We were still teaching people to use computers, yeah. and consistency mm-hmm. helped them find things. Yeah. Right. Right. But even Microsoft broke those rules with the ribbon. Right. You know? And not to mention WPF. Well, uh, yeah. All bets were off then. But that, right. that that's where I'm thinking. It's, it's only been in the past seven, eight years that we've been in this world. It's like, go crazy. Go ahead. Right. What are you going to... And we've ne- I've never felt like we've had a great set of guidelines given back to us. No, I agree. And I think that there's lots of factors. The fact that this is, it's moving so quickly. Everything's evolving so quickly. Um, and I also feel that um, a lot of the design patterns that were created in the earlier days were not necessarily informed by actual designers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't mean they're necessarily wrong. It just means that I think it's valuable to have some input. And, and it's partly the designer's fault too. And this because I think this gets into education. Like I mentioned, I'm very into education. Um, we don't teach designers about the web or um, interfaces or anything sort of dynamic. Right. The traditions is it's very, in fact, they actively resist it in a lot of schools. It drives me crazy. Um, but I think that that's going into it where a lot of designers, you know, have not done what they need to do to get involved in this process and give their input. And so I think that it's 
nice that the doors are open and maybe we can get other input in there and maybe people who are, I mean, I think that the, there's a reason why Apple has seen some success in what they're doing because I think that they decided to sure. really bring in some design input and be like, hey, there's somebody who really knows what they're talking about as far as design goes. How do we adapt that? And I don't, they haven't always been successful, but no. I think that they've kind of started in that trend. Um, but like you were saying that I think it just happened so fast and we haven't figured out the, that bridge between the two disciplines to make it really effective. Okay, we know exactly how to do these things and we know what's best. We're still figuring all that stuff out, I think. So, I mean, I recognize that designers need to start, learn a certain amount about development to really get the metaphors that are available to us. I think so. <laughs> uh, how well does it work the other way? Does it make sense for developers to spend some time starting to understand design? I think so. Absolutely. And there's... So I, I tend to, a lot of times I'll get pushed back from this as saying, well, everybody should be able to have their specializations, and if everybody's a generalist, then mm -hmm. nobody's really good at anything. But I think that there's, there's room not only to, you don't have to be great at this, you don't have to know everything about it, but if you understand the basic principles of what's going on, I mean, we're all kind of trying to work together to build better software mm -hmm. and build better products. So if you understand how the other pieces are fitting into place, it probably will just help you do your job better. But I also feel that it's completely, I think we also have this mindset in our society, like you have the the math and science people, and then you right. have like the artistic people, and no nobody can do the other thing, and we put people in boxes. And I don't really like that. I think mm -hmm. developers can totally understand, um, you know, how design functions and how it works, sure. and even maybe even do that in themselves a little bit. Do you have a set of prescribed guidelines and principles that you teach developers? I don't have necessarily a set of guidelines. That's not a bad idea to sit down and come up with my manifesto. I haven't really done that yet. Sure. Um, I think that the, the one thing that I always tr do try to tell um, devs that I work with who are learning, because that's what I do uh, full-time now, is work with beginning developers. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of what I said earlier about thinking about the user and how a user would go through it. And it's really interesting to see people who are learning and first starting to like maybe put a web app together mm -hmm. and start making decisions based on like, okay, so how would I use this? And what does it make sense to have what, where? And do I need to be concerned? I don't, maybe I don't need to be concerned about colors or fonts right now when mm -hmm. I need to be concerned of like, how do they fill out this form? Sure. Or how does the experience of them getting, uh, registering and getting, you know, their passwords and things like right. that. Um, and they realize, cause a lot of people want, uh, developers want to jump immediately to like, well, I don't know what colors to use. I don't know what fonts to use. And like, that's <laughs> fine, but I don't think that's nearly as important for design as it is thinking about what it's like as the experience of using right. what you're the, making. The flow. How does it flow? Right. Yeah. And then usually once you have that down, you realize that the colors, the fonts, all of that fun stuff usually is informed by the other decisions you are making because sure. you were thinking about the experience. And so that's going to give you insights on how you want the rest of the experience to visually look. And I, and I rarely find that the user knows what they want in that situation, too. That's sometimes yeah. often true. Yeah, they often, they, they know what they don't like. Right. But until you show them something, it's very right. hard for them to visualize a workflow. Right. right. There's a, I think there's a balance as a designer when you're thinking about that. You don't, when I say pay attention to the user, that doesn't mean you automatically do what the user wants. Right. Because they don't always know what they want or they sure. always don't want the best thing. Um, but you can get clues and hints from maybe like actually watching somebody go through what you're making mm -hmm. um, and see what their, see where their frustrations are. And it doesn't mean that you do the easiest thing to fix it. It just means that you see where the pain points are happening and then you apply your own, maybe slightly, hopefully slightly more expert knowledge to be like, right. okay, how can I most effectively fix that or make that better? Or maybe there's a reason for 
whatever, sure. maybe, you know, maybe especially it's on the code side, maybe there's a business concern, you know, there's yeah. 10 zillion things be like, no, it has to be that way. So how can I make it less painful? You know, you have to bring all of the other information you have there to cr- make that experience um, better. But I think if you start at least thinking about it as a user going through that, um, that'll give you a good starting place. And then you're able to pull in that other information that you bring to it with your expert knowledge. And business rules has a has a role to play there too. Right. right. I think it's a really interesting dynamic of taking your design knowledge, mm-hmm. how you want to you, you can potentially see the world versus the way people want to do the workflow versus the rule set that's being pressed down on them from management. Right. Like you really yeah. are. It's a balancing act of, of trying to Definitely. get all those things right. I, I like to think about it as um, you know it's making creative solutions. Sometimes mm-hmm. it forces you to be more creative in your problem-solving skills. Yeah, constraints so. are what create... Yeah, absolutely. Form I'm creativity. a big believer in that, yeah. Yeah, um, actually giving them limits. And part of that is the limitation of the tool. Right. Have you played with stuff like... I've always had the sense that the carousel control mm-hmm. was made by a developer because he could. That makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> actually, kind of going off what you were just saying, I actually think maybe it started with uh, a manager or a business interest. Right. It's like we, um, actually there's, I work with a, um, someone who has a lot of experience in UX and he has talked about this before. He said, this happens when you're at an organization and everybody has different departments and they all want their content on the homepage. And the developer is like, the only way I can get every, make everybody happy is to create a carousel and everybody's on the homepage. But right. it's not necessarily an informed design or mm-hmm. develop development decision it's trying to make everybody happy from a business managerial it's side. Politically it's a show clever. a lot yes. of stuff all at once right yeah, yeah. no i hate carousels <laughs> they should not exist well, I, I, we struggled with this with the dotnet rocks homepage. there's sure. so many things that right. people want right mm-hmm. and so at some point you go back and you look and you're like wow there's a lot of stuff on this there's page a lot yeah. Of there. Yeah. yeah it's difficult to sort all that stuff out it's yeah. a, it is a battle This portion of the Tablet Show is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls, to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework, to free agile management tools and content management systems, all of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting the tablet show. I guess that's the question is, sure, I want to learn some design skills as a mm-hmm. developer, but when do I call the designer? Like when, when do I need an expert's help? Right. That's, that's a really good question. I guess it's a, I mean, it really is not to sidestep your question, but it, it depends on the project and mm-hmm. what particular needs you have. Um, I also feel like if you have, um, I talk a lot about designers contributing an open source and things like that too, um, because they're not there doing that. Right. Um, and it's really hard that if you're doing a, you know, your own website or a side project or open source project, like how do you find people to even do that? And that's a difficult thing to do. Um, so, 
you kind of have to do as much as you can or as much as you're interested in. And then um, at some point, you're maybe you just want some feedback on what you're doing too. So, But I definitely think going through the process of trying um, on your own as a developer and kind of understanding. Um, I talk a lot about kind of what I mentioned before is that if you understand that there are guidelines and rules, at least as a place to start, mm -hmm. I think it really does help instead of just saying, oh, I'm going to pick that color because I feel like it. You start this whole design thinking process um, and most developers that I've talked to who've dipped into their toes into that water like really enjoy it. And it's kind of like, oh, this is fun to do that. So my, my hope is that if you start doing that, then you don't really want to call somebody right away um, because you're enjoying what you're doing. And frankly, if you're following that path, then I would say I think it's more important that what you're doing is sincere and authentic than perfect design-wise. What do you think are some of the biggest mistakes that developers make when they sit down to design their own stuff? Um, I think that one of the biggest is okay, what we were talking about is crowding too much information or too much stuff into a smaller place. Um, and that's something that I've gotten from the opposite, too. When I first started doing the talk that I'm doing here at the conference, um, I asked developers what annoyed them about designers. Mm -hmm. um, and the main thing I heard from developers is, like, why do designers want all this white space? Um, and I definitely see that in developers. I think there's that's a tendency funny. to put stuff all together. White um, space is wasted space. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's negative space. It has a purpose. And if you understand the guidelines of negative space and what purpose it serves from the design angle, then you're like, okay. Developers don't like Miles Davis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, and again, you know, there's there's a balance with that too. Sometimes you'll have somebody who comes from a far, uh, far off design perspective and will put one tiny thing in the middle of this huge expanse, and that's not necessarily good either. But there's a happy medium, and mm -hmm. I think developers tend to go to the I'm going to put everything in here at once, and right. it's hard. I, I actually use um, an example in my talks of the old GoDaddy website that you would go to, and you go, and it's just like ten zillion things all at once. It's like that what it, way it is now. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I, I think they've improved some of it a little bit. It's a lot better now that I don't go there. Yeah, oh, exactly. Right. <laughs> go away, Daddy. It's called yeah. um, So I think that, and I've um, seen in developers when I explain this, they're like, oh, especially like if you're making a form or you're making um, input for users, mm -hmm. it's amazing how a little bit more space and padding and all of that, go it goes a long way. So developers need to decompose, if you will. I will. Yeah. That makes sense. How do we put metrics around that? How do I show that I want to build two versions of this form? Mm -hmm. You know, the version that the developer instinctually wants to make, which we know has too much stuff on it, right. and the version that has a little more design aesthetic. Mm -hmm. I just wonder if I can instrument it to show in an A-B test right. how this is better. Right. And so you can. A lot of user researchers and user experience people do do that on a regular basis. They do A-B testing where they'll have these designs and put it in front of people and see how easily the people can use it. Um, if you're, you know... If you're not going to go full-on user research and set up focus groups and all that stuff, sure. which as a developer, you're probably not, especially if this is a side project or something like that. But you can always find somebody and put it in front of them and just watch how they do this. I tell this for students that we teach, um, you know, when you're making any sort of application, if you're kind of curious of how well this would work... Just watch somebody trying to use it. And it's kind of the same thing. That doesn't mean you automatically do what, you know, they're trying to do differently. But right. Just get some information about how they're using this. Um, and so it is a little bit hard to get. You can't make a checklist and be like, oh, or time it and be like, oh, it took you this long to do this. But um, I do think you can gather a little bit more information about, you know, were you able to 
complete the function that you're trying to. You know, how difficult was you to actually achieve these things? And usually if you see the ease that people go through that, if it doesn't take them much time, or maybe they even like like the process more, they feel yeah. better about it. And but I know that's still a little bit touchy-feely, not this I metrics, do like the idea of software that delights the user. Yeah. I just think it's right. challenged to capture that. I'm, it is a challenge. And I do wonder if we just counted how many forms can you enter in an hour. Right. If the easier to use one, you know, the cleaner one, mm -hmm. actually would increase rate of throughput. Right. I think there's lots, and I'm not an expert on this stuff. I mm -hmm. tend to, um, I'm not a user research person, UX person, and um, I, so I do tend to be a little bit more, um, oh, this feels better to right. me. I like this experience more. Um, but I think the feedback that you get from people who have been using things regularly, um, if you don't get a lot of complaints from somebody, then chances are they're, they're enjoying doing the functionality that you built. So, Is there such a thing as a good wizard? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually That's used it. one. Um, and I think the w website is zzounds.com. It's a website for musical equipment. Okay. And when you, you know, when the typical ordering process, mm -hmm. when you go through a website, you know, first thing you have to do is you, you know, you go through the four or five steps to check right. out, right? Mm -hmm. Make sure that you have all your stuff is in your cart correctly. You and you check your shipping method, your you, your credit card, your shipping address, mm -hmm. your billing address, all that stuff. You verify your order and then you check out, right? Mm -hmm. So this, um, if you can visualize this, it's a it's a wizard that's stacked mm -hmm. uh, vertically, and all the steps are there: one, two, three, four, five. Okay, yeah. And you know the the one that you're just finished collapses. Right. And the next one opens. Mm -hmm. And if you want to go back, you just click on the one that right. you were just on. And I have seen a few of those now. It's, that yeah. works really, really well. Right. And that's a funny thing that even as somebody like me who tries to pay attention to that, it's hard to come up with a good example, although I could give you a lot of bad examples. Yeah. Right? Sure. Um, and that's something. So it, when it's good, you don't notice it as much. Right. And that's kind of the goal, which is a strange thing to do. Speaking of that, yeah. do you have, do you know of any, well, can you name any good, well-designed websites? Well, I have a website. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is it? Um, no, my website is jenmyers.net. And it's well designed, is it? Um, oh, wow. You're going to catch me. I'm not going to get like comments and emails, right? <laughs> Pointing out everything I've done no, wrong. No, no, but you must, you know, in your course of going through the web, you must, well, oh, this website is well designed. You know, I do. I, I Maybe not off the top of my head, but I have been collecting those things for years. So I actually yeah. have my, my pinboard account that, and I used to use Delicious uh, to, mm -hmm. for my bookmarks. Um, I've been, I've had a Delicious account since 2005. And the biggest category I have is my inspiration tag, wow. which is all mm -hmm. the sites that I do. And this is something else I tell students all the time. I also have a Pinterest board and I'll get like yeah. a little snippet of, oh, I really like how they did that form. I like how they did this button, this thing like that. Um, and so I'm constantly collecting uh, websites and bits of things like that um, in my bookmarks that I have I'll have inspiration and then I'll usually have another tag that I add to it like um, this is a blog or this is a storefront um, and so that way when I'm looking specifically for inspiration on a certain thing I can enter those tags in and get a whole list of, of sites that I've been bookmarking for years at this point I have hundreds of them in there um, just you're so right I, there's so many more sites that are infuriating right I don't keep control of those inspirational right yeah so at the top of my head I don't know if I have a favorite but I do keep a list of the ones that I New like. Newegg is a good one. Don't yeah. you like Newegg? Yeah, some of the... It, I, I like the way they, they allow you to sort of narrow down your, you know, your searching, you know, just by category and by... It's a, it's it? a good navigation tree. 
granted. That's exactly what it, it is. It actually yeah. filters down. There's too much stuff on UAG. There's yeah. lots of sites with too much stuff. Mm -hmm. How they build uh, some kind of hierarchical stuff. search right. that you can keep adding rules and distill mm -hmm. down to the things you actually want. I think it's really challenging to do yeah, that it well. It is challenging. And they do it well. Even on their mobile app. They did a good job. Yeah, that's a whole other side of this. That, I mean, we are on the tablet right. show. We haven't really focused on this per se. Do you do much time on the tablet and mobile side of things? So what I try to do is not design specifically for one or the other, right. but try to make sure what I'm doing is very flexible. And that goes from visual design to content. Oh, I mean, everything really starts with content. I should have switched mm -hmm. those things. Um, and so if I, I figure if I'm making something that is all about the content and what either information or functionality that I need to get across to the user, so you kind of build your own hierarchy. Like, this is the most important thing. And so I feel that if you start designing from that point, it's not a huge bother to make sure that it uh, is good for every medium, whether it's desktop or mobile or whatever. So, so not necessarily responsive web design, but just thinking in design metaphors that are tolerant to size. Right. And that's actually, I think, the key to responsive. Like, I, I don't tend to think of, like, I'm going to make a view for this mobile and then I'm going to make it for this desktop, which mm -hmm. at this point, it's almost impossible to do that because mm -hmm. the devices we have, there's so many different versions. Right. Sure. Um, and this is something that I actually have talked a lot with um, UX designers who are used to handing deliverables over to developers and they're like, I'm going to make a mock-up for this size and I'm going to make a mock-up for this size. And now at this point, they're making 20 mock-ups for yeah. all these different sizes. Yeah, you really got to break it down to four, three right. to four. Or you can even better, is this is what I, I teach them to do sometimes, is you could make a HTML and CSS prototype that is responsive from the beginning. And so you've gotten across the design field that you want to to get across mm -hmm. um, and not having to make any static mock-ups whatsoever. And you've already built in that, that fluidness. And so sure. for me, it's just kind of taking that in from the very beginning of the design process is thinking about this is going to be on different devices. So let's make this fluid and dynamic and design with that in mind and just not think of a static version at all. Although you've brought this up on more than one occasion, but, and I think it's a very profound point. When we talk about phones, especially it's like mm -hmm. you are operating in, in a different environment with a different interface. You're oh yeah. Typically one handed. Right. All I've got is my thumb, mm -hmm. you know, as opposed to a desktop app right. where I have a keyboard and a mouse or as a tablet when I probably have two hands or at least a whole hand yeah. right. in a little more of a stable environment. Like, yeah. I, right. You have to design differently. Yeah, I, I do think it still falls in line, though. If you make sure that you've got the most important things there and mm -hmm. it's clear and accessible, then I think that that lends itself well to being able to do it on the phone. And it may not be the exact same experience you have on desktop, but you know you can still hit the baselines of this is the most important thing and build your design around that right. rather than trying to make this really beautiful, fancy desktop version of like, okay, how do I get this onto a phone? It's like, <laughs> that's the wrong way to go about it. Well, and I think we did a show a while back with, with, John, with Sean Wildermuth who talked yeah. about mobile-first design right. that yep. make it work for the small smallest device and work your way out. Right. Right. Definitely. I try to like maybe even skip that all together and just be like, how about we just make this like accessible first, you know, right. all over the place. And then you and can maybe... Disability type accessibility. Like um, I wasn't eyesight. specifically there, but I am. I do think that's a big part. I mm -hmm. don't think we talk about accessibility enough, and that's one of the reasons I, I try to. I'm more or less drawn to simple, minimalistic things because those are also the most accessible yeah, for people. Sure. And if you focus on those things, then that makes sure you're not leaving anybody behind. And I do think that's something that we don't tend to talk about enough. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Well, I think 
it's such a large area that mm-hmm. I don't know that we've ever explored it well enough. Right. Probably not. Yeah. There's so yeah. many additional capabilities built into devices. I don't know if anybody really has, like, there's still a lot of things that I don't know and I try to think about that more often. I think mm-hmm. that's another area where kind of the same thing with design that I don't think we've set guidelines down of this is what you should be doing in all these cases. Right. And yeah. if somebody, I mean, we have some web standards, we have some other things that are trying to um, make it a little bit more accessible. We don't have a good rule book yet, I don't think. Right. Jen, a pet peeve that we haven't talked about yet. Okay. Give us one. Only one. <laughs> Just one. <laughs> Make um, it a good with one. Specific, what specifically? Like what I don't like a design you. or... Yeah, design. Things that developers drive crazy with? Yeah, not really. That doesn't happen to me as much. Like I said, I I'm, I'm, tend to be more of a bridge. So I, I there's... Um, there's Just things about it. So I think, yeah, general. so I think with design in general, well, I honestly do get, I get more frustrated with designers who aren't interested in learning about code in the, in the back end of things because I think that's essential. Right. Um, so just kind of maybe the not the non-integration of all the different disciplines that go into making good applications. Um, I really like all of that stuff. It's all interesting to me. And so um, it's kind of a pet peeve of mine when we don't think about it more holistically and that the people who are doing the different pieces tend to kind of not be interested in something. That yeah, you mentioned that early on in, yeah. the, in the interview when people sort of put up a wall and say, no, don't tell me about that. I don't right. want to learn. I'm very Stop much against that. Yeah. Yes. No, just in I general, I think that. I'm against that mm-hmm. just as a general principle. Yeah. Like, I'm all about education. Um, I think that learning something... I mean, I studied computer science years ago and I did that deliberately as a challenge because I've always been this English artsy type person and, um, and I started teaching myself HTML and I'm like this is fun I can make websites mm-hmm. I want to do more of this type of thing and um, so I tried to study computer science and um, there were things I liked about it but overall I felt like the whole educational system was was built up for people who they didn't they were like why do you want to do this and I'm like because I don't <laughs> know how to do this like I want to learn um, but it's it's the same way the other way around like if somebody who was just you know had done programming for years and then went to go like try to draw or do art degree we would give them the same way like why are you doing this and I really like to see more like people learning different things challenging themselves and I think when it comes to design and development it's the exact same thing like I love to see um, developers who think that they can't understand design or understand what this is start thinking about it and that's the best thing that I I like from the talk that I give of I've had developers come up to me and it's like I never thought that I could ever do anything design wise or understand this it's like but now I feel like I can so I'm you know now after you talked about this I realized that I can understand this bridge the hemispheres yeah that's exciting to me so Yeah, that's the main thing that I like to see happen. But is there still a gray area? Like, I've certainly run into designers who think of their designs in a very static way. Yes. Like, I lay out this design, it's done, now admire it. Right. And and software, because of its interactivity, especially when I think about something like Metro. Right. How do you Mm -hmm. convey this idea that, see how the text rolls off the side Mm -hmm. of the screen? That's a cue that this swipes. I don't find a lot of people who are thinking about the interaction part. I agree with you completely. And I would say that, that's not even a pet peeve of mine. That's like a huge rage-inspiring thing for me. <laughs> That's probably the number one thing that, it, that it frustrates me with designers. And yeah. like I was just describing my background, mm-hmm. I don't have a dis- formal design background. Sure. I started uh, doing web design by teaching myself HTML. Yeah. I was doing design in the browser before I even knew there was Photoshop for like years. Sure. And now people talk about like designing in the browser like it's this thing. And I'm like, there's another way to do it? I didn't know yeah, there was yeah. another way to do it. <laughs> That's all what I always did. Right. So, so I'm very big on that interaction piece, too. I don't think think you can design something statically and I've been uh, sometimes there's been places I've been a front end developer and I've had to to interpret designs other people giving me and that is the worst for somebody who has done both right because 
there would be people who just hand me a Photoshop file and they don't know, they don't even know HTML or CSS. And it's like, you don't, you didn't make these decisions in an informed way because you don't know the cost of building this in the browser or what it's like for people who are going to be getting this website. Um, and that really, really frustrates me because those are not good design decisions. Um, I mean, maybe the end result is, but they didn't make it in a good way. And so no, I agree completely. I think designers have to start letting go of this idea. We're not designing on pieces of paper anymore. Everything right, yeah. is interactive. Everything's dynamic. And they really need to understand the medium and the underpinnings of what they're working with to be able to design effectively yeah. for so we'll call it a pet peeve as long as your pet is Godzilla. Yes. <laughs> Seems very accurate. Well, and I, and I think you hit a really interesting point. Is as long as you look at design as something static, mm -hmm. as soon as the dynamic world hits it, it's never exactly right. Right. I mean, how many times have I had a customer pounding on me because we're a couple of pixels off right. on a, some alignment? Right. Because that's what that browser actually does. Oh, no, I mm -hmm. want every browser version to produce exactly the same right. results. There's a really great site that I, I tell people all the time, especially students, one of those... Um, askaquestion.com sites and then right. gives you an, and there's one does my website have to look the same in every single browser and there's mm. a big no on yeah. it yeah. <laughs> and that's one of the first things that I give to students because especially people who are learning this they're like but I open it up in Firefox and this looks different and it's like and it's going to look different when somebody else views it in IE and it's right. going to look different sure. when somebody else is on a different platform and you you can't try to rush around and make every experience the same you have to embrace the fact that this is a dynamic medium and that um, it's if we focus not on the visuals, but if we focus on the functionality and the message we're trying to get across, that's what informs our designs, yeah. not what it looks like in the end. That's really cool. So, Jen, what's next for you? Uh, <laughs> short term or long term? Uh, both. Um, so, right now... Um, I mean, I am teaching at Dev Bootcamp, which I'm really enjoying, and it's a really good opportunity for me to fill in some of my own, my own gaps. Um, so right now, actually, one of the main goals I'm working on is to become a stronger developer um, and seeing where that takes my design. So I'm, I'm really not focusing on my design skills at the moment, such as they are, but I'm really focusing more on uh, back-end programming and trying to get better at that. And the idea for me is what I've been talking about is I think that in the end that'll help me make better interfaces and applications in the end. What, uh, what are you programming in? Um, I've always worked in Ruby environments. Yeah. Um, so that's mainly what it, the last company I worked for was very much in the closure though. So I have nice. some, you know, see maybe if I, I like functional programming, I don't know. It's all very exploratory for me right now. Did cool. I hear in your bio, you put time into teaching girls programming too? Yes. Um, yeah, I do a lot of that sort of thing. I, so I work with an organization called Girl Develop It. Mm -hmm. um, I actually started one of their first uh, chapters in the U.S. There's like 16 chapters now. Um, but I mainly did that because my own educational experiences trying to, to learn uh, more programming were just, um, it was really hard to find environments where I felt like I belonged or it was okay to ask questions and people wouldn't think I was dumb. Or um, when I did study computer science about 10 years ago, I was the only female computer science major in my school and it felt really lonely at times. Yeah, that's tough. Um, and so, I, you know, a couple years, almost three years ago at this point, I started thinking about environments that would be easier for women to come in and learn about things and... Um, yeah, it's I, it's really it's a lot of fun. I really enjoy doing that. I, I do feel like we're at a tipping point right now. That there's been so much focus and so much pressure around uh, having women involved in technology mm -hmm. more mm -hmm. that we're about to sort of it's 
it's always like darkest before the dawn. It's been mm-hmm. really hard lately, and I feel excited about that. Like this may be what pushes it over. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think it's kind of building up this awareness, and ever everybody's finally realizing like, oh, this is something we not only do we need to do something about, we can do something yes. about it. Um, and I'm also so I'm a mother of an eight year old daughter, so that always gives it a lot of immediacy. Where it's kind of like I want this to be better. So my not yeah. necessarily my daughter has to be a programmer, but if she would ever decide she wants to do something like that, she I want. Have that experience of being the only one. Exactly. Like, it would be much happier if she would be able to make that decision and pursue this, and it would come out of her own interest and abilities, not because of any external factors. Yeah. I think that's a great point and very challenging, but. I do think it is getting better. I think we're on the right track. Yeah. So, when we were in uh, Chicago at that conference, uh, we did show 904 with the Women in Technology panel. Right. That's Wisconsin Dells, actually. Wisconsin Dells. We were out of Illinois a little bit. It's about a two hour drive up. Right. Uh, that was, yes, that was... was uh, Kate Agnew, and it was four really interesting women, different backgrounds, mm-hmm. not right. necessarily software folks. Right. And uh, But they showed a video called She Plus Plus, the documentary. Right. Which it, I was just reminded, uh, Jen just reminded me of that. Uh, what she was saying, all these women in this video were saying that, you know, they they felt like, you know, there, there wasn't... They couldn't find like-minded people who right. just wanted to learn the technology without feeling, you know, completely outcast. So it, it's great, great to you know finally find some people that you can mm-hmm. hang around and find your own stride and. Yeah, and I think that it's really uh, they there's need lots that of encouragement. Yeah, and there's lots of stuff that's coming up uh, like that, and I think that the more that gets normalized, at some point it will be a lot easier just to go into a group of any sort of people and yeah. be able to find who you are, you know, based on your personalities and interests, um, and have like this ready group already there without having to try to, you know, f- search yeah. or find or create groups for it. And even yeah, so, girls yeah. need these role models big time. Yeah, it's it's vis- I think visibility is really important, and like you were saying, we're in this time period now where I think. We're on track for getting better but keep pushing forward yeah. and keep just the awareness and the visibility i think is huge right now yeah it's like a tipping point yeah jen myers thank you very much thank you it's been great talking to you thanks it was great jen myers everybody <laughs> we'll see you next time on the tablet show you're not the only